0: You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.
1: Welcome. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank. You're listening to America's Web Radio. Today in studio, we have a very special guest. In fact, right before (laughs) um, we came online, I let her know just how long I have known her, which is... Ancient of Days, Um, known Carol Minor, who's a licensed clinical social worker, since the early... 90s. (laughs) No. 90s. <laughs> yes, we'll say it out loud. Uh, Carol has, um, a master's degree in social work from the University of Georgia. And she is the director of, uh, the employee assistance program for Gwinnett Medical Center, Gwinnett Hospital System. And she's also the director for the behavioral health component of the family practice residency program at Gwinnett Medical Center. So, Carol comes with a wealth of knowledge and information regarding our topic today. And we also have with us David Donaldson from the Atlanta Healing Center. So, hi, you guys. Hi. Hi.
2: I just want to jump in there that I've known Carol almost as long as that. Almost. In the mid-90s, she and I actually ran a group together and worked with um, women dealing with depression and marital issues, and, and that was a great learning experience for me. I know she taught you much over the years. She
1: has (laughs) taught me so very much um, because we were in private practice together for um, quite a few minutes. Quite a few minutes minutes and have enjoyed the association over the years. I would also like to let our listeners know that if you want to uh, see this streamed live, I'm not sure why you would want to, but in case you would, you can go to. America's Web Radio Facebook page, and they have uh, Facebook Live, so we are actually being broadcast. If you have uh, questions or suggestions for your um, current topic that we're talking about today or suggestions for future shows, please let us know, and you can also write us on the um you can write us on the Atlanta Healing Center um, Facebook page or on our website. It's also, if you, for some reason, were not able to tune in right at this moment, you can uh, also visualize this broadcast on YouTube. So you have many ways in which you can listen to the Detailing Addiction with Dr. Susan Blank Uh Podcast. You can hear it from wherever you source your podcasts. You can check it out on the America's Web Radio uh, website. You can check it out on Facebook or on uh, YouTube. So all of that being said, the reason that we're having you here today, Carol, is the big question that's been on everybody's mind recently is, how do you know when something's a mental illness or when it's a behavioral problem? And uh, that is a real important topic, and one that I think you have particular skill set. So first of all, I'd like, just in case some of our listeners don't understand the role of EAP or what an EAP does, if you wouldn't mind sharing with us a little bit about that role um, that you play, and what that role is, and how many people may not even know that their company provides an EAP. I'll be glad to. And unfortunately,
3: a lot of people don't realize that their companies have employee assistance programs. And when they hear the word employee assistance program, the first thing that comes to everybody's mind is that it's a financial resource.
1: Right. <laughs> assistance. They're not going
3: to give you cash. Yeah, we're not going <laughs> to give you cash. We're more probably more broke than you are. <laughs> but the employee assistance programs originated – I don't even remember back to when it was a long time ago. Just mm-hmm. let me put it that way. They started out as a place to refer associates or employees with addiction issues mm-hmm. uh, to assess and help refer for treatment. It's expanded since then, and currently uh, EAPs provide a number of services. Uh, One of the services they provide are referral to community agencies for elder care, Mm -hmm. uh, for child care, for financial assistance, um, any number of community resources that might be of grief work, Mm -hmm. grief groups. And we still do the addiction part where we refer to um, treatment centers, AA, Al-Anon. AA, Alanon, Naranon, mm-hmm. um, and, and multiple 12-step programs. Mm-hmm. But we also are involved in assessing associates or employees at companies that may be struggling. They may not be performing well at work. So a manager or supervisor might refer them to us for us to kind of help assess the situation and see what resources they need.
1: It's such an important um, part of a, uh, a employee benefit, actually and a benefit to the company because, as many of us know who have small businesses or larger businesses, you invest a lot of time and effort in an employee, Mm -hmm. and you don't want to lose that employee, if at all possible. So if there are problems, um, suddenly a change in behavior, they're showing up late, they're acting out inappropriately, they seem to be falling asleep at work, that there's some kind of problem or change Mm -hmm. that we don't always know what that is, and it's really not... um An obligation of the supervisor to be able to diagnose and direct, but it's very important that the EAP can be brought in on an emergency basis and help assess that person and help them determine, well, it's not even an employee problem at all, except their child is having some issues, Mm -hmm. and because they're worried about their child, they're not sleeping, and You can see how that can all unravel. So Mm -hmm. the opportunity to have a professional who's well-trained like yourself uh, be able to assess this person and figure out or at least figure out what the next step is in figuring out what the problem is so that hopefully that employee can have support Mm -hmm. and be able to – become the good employee that they were before. Well, and I think another important part of it is that employees
3: can contact their EAP on their own. They don't have to wait until they're having difficulties at work. They can call on their own. It's totally confidential, and it doesn't cost them anything. anything. Mm -hmm. It's truly a benefit. It's even better than insurance because with insurance, oftentimes you have a copay. For the EAP, there's no copay. You can come in. the thing The thing is, though, it is time limited. Right. It's set up to figure out what the problem is and to do some problem solving. But you could have from three sessions to eight. I've heard of companies that do twelve or fifteen. Mm-hmm. So. Um, so you can
2: actually do some some short um, short term counseling. Mm-hmm.
3: The EAP can <clears throat> do short term brief counseling, and it's it's up to the EAP person doing the assessing though as you're talking with the person uh, the advantage is that you have more than one session they don't drop in and you have to say
2: what they out. figure it Mm -hmm. all out in one session (laughs)
3: right Um, and that
2: which is really crucial um, because so often when the issues come in and it's not an obvious addiction issue or an obvious bad drug screen that got them into this situation you sometimes don't really know We've had a, a, a few times where we've done assessments because of the changing culture. There's been issues that ended up being anger issues or adjustment issues, but it looked just like alcoholism until mm-hmm. you know, the lab work showed that there was no alcohol. The drug screens were all clean, but there were d- definite issues going on. Mm-hmm. And so for us, we had a few sessions to help figure it out. Um, yeah. But a system like, like, like yours would have had a bit more time.
3: Well, and the thing, too, that the EAP can do is, or one of the things that I always do is I ask the questions about, have you had a physical? And I go through mm-hmm. the physical components. Yes. Um, and don't just automatically jump to it's a behavioral issue or it's a mental illness. And that, because those two things can, they're actually very different. mm mm-hmm. um, a mental illness can be episodic. It can be a depressive reaction to a death. It can be a grief reaction.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, it can be a reaction to job change, right? mergers, um, children growing up and leaving the home. Um, mental illnesses can be adjustment reactions to situations, mm-hmm. and they're not deep-rooted, and, and they're treatable. The, but sometimes it's a behavioral problem. And that gets into being a part of somebody's character. That's how I usually talk about it in terms. It's a part of who they are. Mm-hmm. And it's been there all along, but maybe people haven't noticed it. Or when they were kids, they said, oh, it's just a kid. Or It's a phase. The a phase mm-hmm. they're going through. But when you look at it across the time span, and that's um, where having more than one EAP session can help help. The professional making the assessment, we can kind of look at it across the time mm-hmm. span. Um, you begin to see, you begin to see that it's a pattern of behavior. It's not a reaction or something that just has come up in right. recent times.
2: Yeah, we had um, a few professional evaluations for physicians, where where the physicians really weren't changing so much as the hospital systems that they were working for mm-hmm. had decided we're going to change our culture and we want our nurses to be able to feel comfortable to talk to the physicians and ask questions and not be afraid to not give vital information and the physicians had such a difficult time adjusting to yes. that change in hospital culture. Mm-hmm. That it actually became a referral issue. Mm
3: -hmm. You you see that quite frequently. And, too, with the younger generation, the the millennials take a lot of heat. But, really, I think we have to look at how the millennials became millennials. Right. And when you start looking at how millennials became millennials, our generation has to start holding themselves accountable somewhat. Correct. And I think that happens in hospital systems, too. Physicians have been allowed
1: certain behaviors through the years. And now people are saying, "Uh uh-uh. No, you can't throw things. You can't yell and swear at people. You can't threaten people. You can't um, act in an abusive way. That will no longer be tolerated. And I have to tell you, having, you know, being ancient as I am and having gone through probably the more traditional medical education and medical school when people could yell at you and tell you you were... quoting someone, uh, you're not smart enough to be a gas station attendant. So that tells you how old it is Mm -hmm. because they actually had attendants that would put gas in your car. For those younger people who don't know, people used to come out and actually put the gas in your car. So it it was um, not unlikely that almost every day if you weren't being abused uh, verbally um, you were aware of somebody else being abused and that was just part of the culture and because this is an important surgeon or this is a high producer for the hospital or this is a well-known renowned professor you were just expected to suck it up and um, and get through it, however you can, and then you had the privilege of being that kind of jerk to the next group coming up, and uh, this hazing process was just normal. Uh, no, it's not normal, but it was accepted behavior,
2: normalized,
1: normalized and accepted behavior and tolerated, and many of the. Um, older physicians that we might do an assessment on... they truly are mystified. Mm -hmm. Now, some of them may come in, and if drugs or alcohol are part of their picture, they've got a great story for you. They deny, 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 but in their heart of hearts, they know they're using drugs, or they're drinking, or they showed up in the emergency room with alcohol on their breath, Um, or that they're writing scripts for somebody and then trading out um, the pills. Mm -hmm. But Truly, a lot of these folks that were raised and trained in this very permissive behavioral state where as long as you're a big producer, as long as you bring a lot of business to the hospital, you can do whatever you want, they are mystified. They cannot believe because no one has given them that feedback. So when you said a minute ago about those of us who have raised some millennials need to stand back and assume some responsibility because I think that some of the ways in which we are seeing some of the behavior that is problematic for people in the workplace often started with their worldview as kids. Yes. And when you're allowed to have a fit and get what you want and not have consequences and have... Mama or daddy or grandma or somebody sticking up for you all the time, and it becomes the teacher's fault or the school's fault and not your kid's fault that they didn't do their homework or that they were being rude. Um, we create people who are astonished that the world is not going to be okay with that kind of behavior. Mm-hmm.
2: So, is it a common experience for you in a P- EAP situation to have a mom? Coming in, that's her stress is that she can't manage this this five year old that won't accept the word no.
3: Oh, sure, but even more than that, it's the the mom who comes in who can't manage her twenty two year old who has gone off to college and is just expecting to be treated at college the way he's been treated at home. And his grades are failing.
1: And it doesn't work. And it doesn't doesn't work. work. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk more with Carol Miner from the Gwinnett Hospital System. Thanks for listening.
4: Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol.
1: Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank. You're listening to America's Web Radio. Today in studio, I have David Donaldson from the Atlanta Healing Center, and I have Carol Miner, licensed clinical social worker from the Gwinnett Hospital System. She is um, in charge of their Employee Assistance Program, EAP, and also uh, she is the director of the behavioral health component of the Family Medicine Uh, residency program. Um, Thank you, Carol, for being here today. And just before we leave the EAP, um, because I do want to get onto our main topic, but how would an employee find out if they have EAP benefits? What would be the easiest way for them to do that?
3: The easiest way would be to go under benefits, uh-huh. most have an intranet or some form mm-hmm. of of communication like that. So to go through HR okay, or health and wellness, different companies call, call it, it different right. things, mm-hmm. and then look for employee assistance program under those headers. Mm-hmm. The other thing is if you're not Internet savvy, because there are companies
1: all, oftentimes that have a lot of people that are not, Call HR. Mm-hmm. So the human resources should be able to get you in touch with, or,
3: those or folks. if there's a company nurse, because mm-hmm. some of the factories and um, places like that have company nurses or company doctors. They should know. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to do
1: my disclaimer. Sometimes they don't know. They either. don't know
3: either. So
1: So you have to dig a little bit, and not every company has it, but it is a wonderful benefit, and it's something that uh, people need to know about because usually when an emergency comes, it's an emergency, and you don't have a lot of time to be looking around or trying to find a good source of help for you, your family member, or an employee that you're working with.
3: And most are 24 hours. So you can call any time of day or not. They may not be in the office, but you can you can place a phone call to them.
1: Thank you. So right before um, our break, we were talking about the the fact that we're seeing a group of um, of individuals um, that we're calling the millennial group, and that some of them have a marked difficulty going from. High school into college or going from the university into the workplace or going from high school to the workplace, um, that the expectations that they have of people around them and the expectation that the employer is going to have or the college is going to have are very, very different. They're quite disparate, kind of like the old doctor who's used to throwing a fit and getting his way or her way. Mm-hmm. Um, now we've got um, a, a new generation that is just as flummoxed um, as the older doctors are that the culture has changed and nobody notified them. <laughs> yeah, so
3: it, it's, it's, it's a pretty difficult um, thing to navigate. Yes, um, because one of the things for change to occur, uh, people have to be able to accept responsibility for themselves and if you've not been taught how to take responsibility for yourself, how are you going to do that right So it's about building a skill set just like for the older physicians that mm-hmm. we were talking about they have to develop a whole new skill set. So, so you have to you, you have to kind of look at those things. Mm-hmm. In case y'all don't know, I am sitting here talking with my hands because I cannot,
1: <laughs> yeah, cannot get my thought out without moving my hands around. So, so we're giving her plenty of space to do that. Um, but yes, I think it's important to understand that for some of these behavioral issues, that it really is education and it's learning some new skills, both. If it's a child, the family has to make some adjustments, as well as the the young person or the child. And if it is a workplace situation, then um, there has to be some understanding on both parts, um, both management and leadership, as well as the employee. That this is going to take a minute, and. Um, Hopefully, there's that kind of patience within the system to be able to tolerate that. Sometimes there's not, though. Sometimes there's not. And as you bring up that topic,
3: um, I do a class twice a year called Managing the Difficult Associate, (laughs) which is designed around the associates with behavioral issues, Mm -hmm. not depression, not not anxiety, not Mm -hmm. mental illness, but with behavioral issues. And we talk about how to identify Mm -hmm. certain behavioral issues and what to do when you see those issues. Again, in the workplace, you're not there to diagnose, but if you've had some education as to Mm -hmm. what you might be looking at, then you can make the appropriate referral to the EAP. And then they can take it from there and get it to an outside person
1: who can address the issues with that person. Mm so, do you have? And I hate to put you on the spot, but is there a common scenario that you might see with a millennial, for example? Um, with
3: a millennial, it would be uh, what you might see is they come into the job. Number one, they expect to make a hundred thousand. They expect to make six figures mm-hmm. without, and some do. I mean, with certain degrees, you graduate and you got smart. that, <laughs> right? Um, but but for a lot, they come in expecting to be at the top of the ladder. Mm-hmm. And so when you hold them accountable, like you want reports or you want to know what they're doing on mm-hmm. a project, they want to um, sidestep. Maybe sidestep's an old term, but they want to look at other people. I think that's a thing you're looking at when you look at behavioral issues Not just for millennials, for the older docs you were talking about, the 30- and 40-year-olds. This is, across the board, Mm -hmm. a tendency to want to blame other people. Mm -hmm. When you're sitting down with them and you're talking and you find that anything that
1: happens that's not positive is somebody else's fault. Right. Or somebody else is doing something Something worse uh worse. or the same thing.
3: Uh Um,
1: So the deflecting of, of responsibility and the the blame and the accusing um, so that they're no longer on the hot seat. Hopefully they can get their manager or their parent or their spouse or their whoever um, on their own defensive or paying attention to somebody else in the family Mm -hmm. or somebody else on the street or Mm -hmm. in the classroom. Mm
3: -hmm. Or changing the subject. Correct. Taking you to something else. But if you had just, mm-hmm. I wouldn't be doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one of the things that that you want to look at. Also, it's it's kind of like that. Um, and I'm going to take it away from the millennials, if that's okay. Absolutely. Um, wherever you think it needs to be taken. If we're looking at behaviorals, mm-hmm. there's oftentimes feels like there's not a conscience. Yes. And there's there's some differing opinions on where that gets formed and if mm-hmm. you're born with it, if, if not. But oftentimes it feels like there's a coldness. Mm-hmm. And I tell people you can, you can maybe I'm taking it a little too far, but you can actually see it in their eyes. Mm-hmm. If you look beyond, you know, the eyes are the uh, window to the, the soul. <laughs> um, there's some things mm-hmm. to that. For example, I was interviewing a person one point in time, and um, they had been in, um, had their own business, and a competitor had come in and taken um, gotten a co- contract away, and he perceived it as they had stolen the contract from him. So when I asked what, you, what he did, he just looked at me and said, well, I went and stole their business and felt nothing about it. So that's the kind of thing that I think you're looking at, mm-hmm. um, because that was okay. Right. That was all right.
2: So there was a real imagine? justifying,
4: mm-hmm.
2: feeling very, very justified in their actions, and no sense of remorse, remorse or no mm-hmm. sense of, of right and wrong connected to their actions.
1: Mm-hmm. Or empathy for or the, empathy. the other.
3: There's no, com- mm-hmm. no compassion. Now, only, only when it benefits them, uh, mm-hmm. they can be very sorry and, and remorseful, and just—I don't know the other word to describe it—apologetic. It. Apologetic. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, we see that a lot in domestic um, partnership
2: abuse situations. Abuse situations. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
3: Um, and they come, and then and they'll be so kind for a short period of time. And then when things, when they feel like things have gone back to normal, the old behaviors come back. So they're actually very bright too. Mm-hmm. They know you better than you know yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, again, I'm just talking about behavioral issues. I'm not talking about mental illness like depression, bipolar disorder. I'm mm-hmm. talking schizophrenia. schizophrenia. There's, schizophrenia.
2: there's um. The confusion that comes because real often with alcoholics and addicts in early recovery the family members are waiting for the apology or they're waiting for their loved one to be able to say you know i what i did was was wrong and i'm so sorry um and the way we work with family members is that your loved one does not have the capacity to give you that yet typically if they're working their, their program and they're working their steps around 90 days, that part of the brain's going to start lighting up and they're going to start having those feelings and be able to do that. But they don't have it yet. And so when it's chemical dependency, we can kind of help people wait for the recovery process to take place and for that empathy button to turn on. But in the behavioral disorders, you're not necessarily going to see the empathy button ever turn on.
3: Not necessarily unless it benefits them. Um, while you were talking, when you were talking about the um, addict and the and the addictive brain and how it will kick in in 90 days, if, if I go back again to the behavioral
1: piece, mm-hmm. can we take a break yeah. right here and then we'll come back to the behavioral piece. Thanks for listening and please stay tuned.
4: Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not... So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.atlantahealingcenter.com.
1: This is Dr. Susan Blank, host of Detailing Addiction and medical director of the Atlanta Healing Center. Please join me on Tuesday afternoons at 4 p.m. Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank, and you're listening to America's Web Radio, or you're checking us out on Facebook Live from the America America's Web Radio Facebook page, or maybe you're watching us on YouTube, or you're accessing this program from wherever you source your favorite podcasts, but in any event, glad you're back with us, and our guest today is Carol Miner, licensed clinical social worker who works with the Gwinnett Health System, both as an EA and Employee Assistance Program Director and also with the Family Practice Residency Training Program. And uh, we get to be the great benefit of uh, her residents who come and rotate with us. And they have presented on this uh, radio show before. So we're really happy to have you here. Right before I rudely interrupted you at the end of the last segment, uh, David was talking about the process of the recovery that happens when somebody has the disease of addiction and that there are milestones that if we can keep somebody sober um, for these periods of time, then a lot of the behavioral issues, the lack of empathy, the distance, the isolation that um, family members will see in their loved one, that begins to heal and they begin as they learn some coping skills and some strategies to stay away from substances, their brain can get back to where they were before. And you were starting to make an interesting uh, comment about not people with the disease of addiction, but some drug dealers. So I'm sorry I interrupted you, but please share that with us.
3: I, and I think going, that's the difference in the behavioral issue because sometimes people will have the question that you'll have a drug dealer who doesn't do drugs. At all. At all. Mm-hmm. At all. The only thing they may do is they may put it on the tip of their finger to taste it to see the quality of the drug. But that's as far as it goes. And they, be, so, and they f- have, no, again, we go back to no conscience, as to who's being impacted or what their drug is going to do to people because their focus, it's a business. I think that's the
1: thing. It's a business. Mm -hmm. To benefit them. To benefit them. So... And so they engage in behaviors, and we have plenty of people who do have the disease of addiction. And one of the ways in which they finance their disease is by By dealing drugs. drugs. But when you look at the um, real business of drugs in this country... The people leading these big cartels, the people leading these big companies, for the most part, could not do what they do if they were actively using drugs. Mm-hmm. But they also are very aware that they're killing people, that they're impacting people's lives, that folks are going to jail, that children are being abandoned, that all kinds of terrible things are happening. And they don't care. No, they don't. They truly don't. They'll be remorseful if they get caught.
2: Mm-hmm. I'm reminded mm-hmm. of the work of, of Dr. Gary Bird that he does with the anger, anger management. Because in his training for people to become certified to work with anger management, he absolutely just tries to extinguish any sort of being a good therapist. He he does not want you listening to the story. He doesn't want you buying the story, supporting the story at all. He wants you just looking at the action this person laid their hands on this other person. Whatever story they're saying to justify it is beside the point. And and his emphasis is they've got to change the behavior. The words don't matter.
3: I think that's the real cue when it's a behavior disorder. Yes the focus has to just be on the behavior
2: but it's so confusing because we have this one book the diagnostic and statistical manual that has <laughs> all of these mental health brain disorders as well as these behavioral disorders all in one all book.
1: Lumped together
3: so it's
2: all lumped as this is all just a mental illness mm-hmm. but they're very very different
3: they're they're very different and you know the dsm-5 has put them all together it doesn't right. separate where the dsm four the diagnostic manual before, at least separated them Correct. into two different categories. S- but now they're all thrown in there right. together. But now they're clusters, A, B, and C, mm-hmm. um, and things like that. And, and, and to me, I think that would make it more confusing for the general population. Right.
2: Because it's all one book.
3: Because it's all one book, and... You go on the Internet and you look, and that's the thing that concerns me and scares me for lay people. Is because you can go put symptoms on the (laughs) Internet. (laughs) And Dr. Google. And Dr. Google says that I'm this Mm -hmm. or that my husband is this or that my child is this. Right. Um, So I think... I always like to caution people these are categories. Right. And there has to be more than one thing. Right. It has to be five or
1: six of these different things. So over a period over a period of time. And not attributed to and they were drunk, mm-hmm. or and they were having an epileptic seizure, seizure. and they were um, in a diabetic um, uh, hypo, hyperglycemic state. Uh, yes, there's a lot of caveats, and it's not easy. As we all at this table admit, it is not easy to diagnose someone, and it's not a one-and-done kind of situation. We have to see them over time. We have to get a a lot of information, not just from the individual, but from other people in their lives, and we have to meet with them using our skills and our knowledge, and we're still going to be wrong sometimes. So... To your point, Carol, and thank you. That is really important that we understand that, yes, it's tempting, and um, (laughs) yes, it's tempting, but we need to be really careful. And while sometimes I don't always agree with what the APA says, the American Psychiatric Association, um, there are some, it's right for us to not be trying to diagnose public people just from watching their behavior because we don't know their intent and we don't know what other things may be influencing. And so that is out of line for people, in my opinion, and the APA, that we should not be, unless we've actually interviewed and treated that person, and then we shouldn't be talking about it because that's violating their <laughs> privacy. <laughs> so, um, so we have to be careful because it can get really... Um, tempting, but it's not uh, not necessarily um, going to be a, a right conclusion or a fair conclusion for that person. Mm-hmm. Uh,
3: to, to your point, when I'm working with people oftentimes, I do not know the title of this song. It's a country song. But it's about a gentleman that gets on the train in the city, and he's got three little boys with him or, or kids with him, and they're just wild, and they're all over the place. And people are looking at him, judging him about his parental skills. But then somebody says something to him, and you find out that these kids' mom has just died. So he's just lost his wife, and his kids are acting out because of that. If you just went on that scenario, you'd make a diagnosis that would probably
1: not be accurate. Right. So to your point, you have to look at people over -hmm. over time. Over time. And sometimes trying to decide is this a mental illness versus is this a behavioral problem um, can take some time. Mm -hmm.
2: But also to your point that if you are going to Dr. Google and you're putting in these various (laughs) symptoms (laughs) and you're looking for something, you obviously have some sort of discomfort that you need to call EAP about or call your doctor about and go, get some assistance to figure out what the issue is because if you've got, you know, if you've got concerns about your child who's failing in school or getting kicked out and you're looking for the answer in Dr. Google, you're probably going to be lost in that situation. You need, there are plenty of trained experts out there who have spent years studying how to um, distinguish mental health issues versus behavioral right. health issues versus yeah. you just physical some, problems
1: or you just need some reassurance that this is a phase and it. this kid is perfectly normal and you know it's mm-hmm. going to pass in about six months if you can hang in there and stand it so it, it is really important because we can make ourselves a little bit crazy but on the other hand we do have to pay attention if it looks great on paper and yet it just doesn't feel good inside it is really important we pay attention to that and pay close attention what might be a fine person or relationship for somebody else if it's not for you you need to you need to pay attention a lot of people think oh we only make our decisions in our wise mind in our left brain mm-hmm. and our right brain that has no language that has no ability to um to put into words or write us a letter um we don't count we don't keep our emotions they don't play a role in our decision making or our understanding and what we really know from brain science studies is that we often make a lot more of our decisions with our emotional mind than we do with our logical mind so we need to pay attention to that. We're not always going to be right but it's um, it's often a big mistake to ignore that little eh, feeling that you've got that this is not a safe situation or this is not a safe person for you to be with Mm -hmm. it's the old trust your gut correct because your gut really does know
2: combined with the verify
1: trust and verify verify. we're going to take a break right now when we come back we'll talk more about how do you know the difference between a behavioral problem versus a mental illness thanks for listening
5: This is Ron Camacho, host of the Business Hour, on Fridays from 10 to 11 a.m. Join me as I talk with passionate professionals on a program that profiles the best businesses, business practices, and fascinating business professionals to get an insider view of how America works. The Business Hour from 10 to 11 a.m. on America's Web Radio.
6: The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects,
0: You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.
1: Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank. You're listening to America's Web Radio. And today in studio, we have one of our favorite people, Carol Miner, who is a licensed clinical social worker, and she works with the Gwinnett Health System. Employee Assistance Program, as well as their family practice um, residency. And we also have David Donaldson from the Atlanta Healing Center. So I'm really glad that you guys are here today. I think this is um, an important and uh, interesting conversation, letting people know that whether it is a behavioral issue or a mental illness, and we haven't spent a lot of time on mental illness uh, in this Broadcast, but we have in others, and we certainly can have Carol back to, to spend more time on that side of the, the scale. But looking at in both of these cases, often there are some solutions. They're not quick fixes, but there are some solutions. So, um, in our break, we were talking a little bit about how do people seek support and help when they have these questions that, David, you were raising, um, Dr. Google uh, trying to figure out um, where to go. And if they have a a thought or a concern, then they probably might want to check it out. And often, uh, to your point, Carol, at the break you were talking about they often go and see their primary care doctor first. That's correct. So with that
3: being said, the statistics are pretty high. That's going to be most people's interaction with Mm -hmm. with behavioral health. So family medicine doctors for a long time have been required, the residency programs have been required to have a behavioral scientist or uh, to teach family medicine physicians how to identify, Mm
1: -hmm.
3: how to um, interview the patient, how to identify how to set boundaries with the patients and make the referrals when appropriate. Um, So they're not the EAP for their patients, but when it comes to seeing a behavioral issue um, or a mental illness, that they can make the appropriate referral. And sometimes it takes them several visits with the patient. They'll have them come back um, so that they can build the trust and make those
1: appropriate referrals
3: so that people can get the care that they want.
1: And I just realized that I have not been using the term correctly. It's family medicine residencies as opposed to family practice. We have to keep our language updated. Um, a family medicine, I'm, I'm really glad that we're seeing more and more uh, primary care doctors getting this kind of training, because it would be quite unusual, honestly, for someone to be looking at Dr. Google and say, oh, gee, I think I need to see um, a therapist, or I might need to call and talk to an addiction medicine doctor. That's not their go-to their long-term relationship is with their pediatrician, their OBGYN, their family medicine doctor, their internist. These are the people they've known over the years that have taken care of them and that know their kids. And mm-hmm. even if they're not treating their kids, they know about the kids or the spouse or the parents or um, they know where some of the challenges are and they can often be um, a very trusted um reference for them. Mm -hmm. So they may refer you to a cardiologist because your EKG looks uh, a little off. Or they may refer you to somebody to check your kidneys because now your BUN and creatinine are way too high. So it's not unusual to get a referral from a a family medicine doctor to see a specialist and this is part of the the beauty of their education lots of this they can handle but they also are are trained in when do i refer mm-hmm. when is this more than i need mm-hmm. to do or when is this yeah that's not skin cancer mm-hmm that's because you've been in the sun too much and you need to use some sunscreen. Um,
2: <laughs> or your dermatologist is just rude and they keep saying age spot. That's just an age spot, nothing to worry about.
1: <laughs> so it is um, it is really important and it's difficult. Um, and some of the... Um, The behavioral pieces are really hard to manage. And, David, you were speaking a minute ago about anger management. And where this is becoming, well, I don't know that it's becoming, it's continuing to be a big part of some of these behavioral problems, is that people do get referred for anger management training and treatment um, because people have issues.
2: Yeah, and a lot of times those referrals will end up going to a therapist who will uh, talk to them about all these emotional issues and validate and justify the wrong things. And and the anger management approach is that first the behavior has to stop. Part of what I was thinking as you were talking about this too is how there's the the new therapy that's really taking off here in Atlanta is DBT, dialectic behavioral therapy, which is really about engaging your thinking brain and your value your value choices and beginning to make decisions mm-hmm. with your with your brain as opposed to just the emotions mm-hmm. which behavioral issues do respond to not as you said it's not a quick fix. They're not going to fix that in five sessions but mm-hmm. over the course of, of with DBT 20 something sessions learning about this, people do have the capacity to change
1: and to learn some really good skills that are applicable not just to manage their anger but maybe to um, manage their anxiety if they have to give a talk or presentation at work or if they're having a difficult conversation with an aging parent about you've got to stop driving now. These kinds of things, those skills that you can learn from a DBT therapist can be extremely helpful. And really, um, a lot of the behavioral issues, it is about skill building. It's recognizing the problem, acknowledging the problem, accepting that there is a problem.
2: And that I don't want to end up in prison, so instead I'm going to do this. Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, and that's a lot of people
3: with the behavioral issues, too. They, To your point, they make their decisions based on emotion. But that, what I spend time with folks doing, too, is teaching them. You usually have a thought associated with that emotion, and that's what, what uh, if I'm understanding DBT correctly, mm-hmm. getting in touch with what the feeling
1: is. Right, the physical feeling. Often there's a physical, physical feeling, feeling even before there's a thought, thought or, or an or, emotion. And labeled. finding that. Because mm-hmm. you do feel it in your
3: body somewhere. If you notice... Um, by the time we get to be adults, so we're so out of touch with our bodies because we've been told you don't cry or you don't right or don't sit still sit still or do mm-hmm. that. So we get out of touch with our bodies. But if you can get back in touch with your body, you know where those feelings mm-hmm. are. For the addict,
2: he'll, absolutely, he'll
3: you know when you're feeling it. Mm-hmm. Um, You'll feel it in your belly, you'll feel it in you'll clench your fist, mm-hmm. your cheek you'll grit your teeth right. you'll furrow your brow. If if you can get back in touch with your body, mm-hmm. then um, that can help you be aware of that. And hence a lot of referrals to yoga, tai chi mm-hmm. um, meditation. Meditation, meditation, mindfulness. Um, a lot of people think those things are hokey, but they're really not. They've been proven to work with bringing you back into the reality of the moment and the situation. I was,
2: um, I was actually reading about this not long ago, and 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 what I was reading, they were talking about the difference between fear. And excitement is just three fingers, mm-hmm. and it's putting your fingers at your belly button. Mm-hmm. Fear is higher up; fear it hits you in the in the solar plexus and makes you just takes your breath away. Whereas excitement is is a little bit lower, mm-hmm. and to your point, it is completely connected. Just three fingers apart, those two very different feelings.
1: Mm-hmm. And if you were to measure someone's vital signs, if they were um, riding a roller coaster, if they were watching a scary movie, or if they were having an orgasm, um, they all look exactly the same physiologically. The blood pressure's up, heart rate is up, pupils are dilated, uh, body temperature is up. They look the same. How we interpret them, often the music that goes along with the, sound, the soundtrack, soundtrack. Um, helps interpret. But they're physiological changes that look the same to the, from the outside. Mm-hmm. So it's really important to get back in touch because the earlier you can recognize what's your warning sign, then breathing can help. Mm-hmm. Then distraction can help. Picking up the phone, calling your sponsor, going to a meeting, you can take and make interventions at that point. If you wait till you're in a rage or a panic or you're about to pick up the bottle or the phone, I can guarantee you, you're going to pick up the bottle yeah. and not the phone. But if you're aware of what your body's telling you that this is a dis ease or an uncomfortable feeling state, I need to take some kind of action to change this, and it doesn't have to be yelling and screaming or um, harming somebody or relapsing. Um, there are mm-hmm. other options. So l- getting back in touch with ourselves physically really, really important mm-hmm. and very hard to do. Very hard.
2: Hence, several sessions, not just five quick sessions that Mm -hmm. many insurance companies will approve.
1: Right. Mm -hmm. Wish we had more. And wish we had more time today, but we don't. I do want to thank you, Carol Miner, for being here with us today, and David as well. And thank all of our listeners, and we will see you again next week on Detailing Addiction.
0: You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.